0: Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got a wonderful show for you today. As I always do, I always look forward to uh, every opportunity I can to talk about God's Word, and I'm going to do that to get things started with Beverly Canaris. She's brought me the topic of grieving the Holy Spirit, which I've always found to be a very challenging one, and I think it's always good to revisit what it means and how we're going to navigate our way through it. Beverly taught Bible Study Fellowship for over 30 years and stays very involved in teaching and ministering, and she has a podcast as well. And Bev, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the podcast. She is becoming. She is becoming. Yeah. Bev, nice to have you here. This is going to be you. a good topic today.
1: It is. It's, it's something that a lot of people question and struggle with, and it's not only, um, you know blaspheming the holy spirit it's grieving the holy spirit it's quenching the holy spirit those three things kind of bother us and we wonder am i doing that and if i am how do i get out of it what is it like and who is this holy spirit anyway so a lot of questions around the holy spirit so i hope that we can in a short amount of time here clear up some of that
0: are we going to be able to to define what grieving means
1: yes we will we'll define the grieving and also the blasphemy of the holy spirit for that yep Okay, are we ready to go?
0: I'm ready.
1: Well, first thing I want to do is, before we look at these three verses, just review quickly. This is going to be a real quick summary of who the Holy Spirit is and what He does in our lives. First of all, always He always was and is. He's part of the Godhead, and He was there at creation when the Spirit was hovering over the waters. In the Old Testament, we read the Holy Spirit coming upon people for special work. In the New Testament, we have greater clarity and experience with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin before we are born again, and after, as believers, He gives us spiritual new life and freedom from guilt and the punishment of sin. The Holy Spirit indwells us upon conversion and seals us securely, eternally, in a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit gives us power to turn from sin. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the truth about God and ourselves. The Holy Spirit empowers us to serve God and be His witness. He is our comforter, our encourager, our guide. We are abound with hope when he is within us. Isn't that beautiful? And then we have the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit, which are, and these should be developed as the Christian grows in the Christian faith. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit sanctifies us to be more like Jesus as we surrender to him. That's an important part. We do have a part to play in this. We are to live by the Spirit, which means consistently interacting with Him and keep in step with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is vital in the lives of Christians. Bill, did I forget anything there of the ministry uh, I, of I the
0: Holy Spirit? I don't think so. You did a great job, Bevan. When I look at the fruits of the Spirit, I try to do a yearly diagnostic and where I say to myself, in this year, was I more loving? Was I more joyful? Was I... Did I have more peace? Did I have more patience? And I try to evaluate <laughs> where I'm at and I gotta That's say, That's a good
1: guide, I isn't say, it? I
0: don't always come out good, but
1: it's an examination. It yeah. is. But, because we can we can really major on a couple of those and really fall short in others. Yeah.
0: But shouldn't mm-hmm. we be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more have more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, mm-hmm. and more self control. That's year. the idea. Thank you.
1: That's called maturity, <laughs> growing in the faith, yeah. becoming Christ-like, Bill. Good job. <laughs> okay,
0: well, you did a nice job of
1: covering that. <laughs> okay, all right, let's go into this first verse then from Matthew 12, 31 that bothers a lot of us. And here it goes. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, this is uh, the context: is Jesus just did a miracle of freeing somebody from demonic activity, and the religious leaders said, "Well, he did that by Satan himself," and so they were attributing what Jesus did to Satan. Now, this sin is committed by unbelievers and is sometimes referred to as the unpardonable sin. Linking this-
0: Jesus and Satan.
1: Well, linking that, yes, but it's more than that. Even okay, it's it it. That's what their specific. They were demonstrating this sin through that act. Okay, but there's a sin underlying sin that is going on here. This is a sin only unbelievers commit. Christians or believers, when convicted of sin, can always repent and be restored. Okay, so there should take our blood pressure down a tad. Unbelievers, however, will stubbornly resist any conviction of sin, and this resistance is perpetual throughout their life, becoming eternally doomed to judgment and hell. Believers, when convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit, this awareness leads you to understand that you need to get right with God. This is not the person who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Instead, it reveals the Holy Spirit is at work in you. That's a good thing. It's a good thing, a good thing when you feel that conviction. Now, the unpardonable sin, then, is really rejecting Christ as your Lord and only Savior. It is rejecting the one hope God has given us for forgiveness of sin, a restored relationship with Him. Listeners, if you have rejected the repeated witness of the Holy Spirit showing you your sins and pointing you to Jesus who died to take care of those sins, you are in grave danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, Bill. Any further questions on this important topic? That
0: well, you just dropped a, bit a very significant piece of of um, biblical reality. So I'm it just, is. I'm pausing there because
1: it, it's it is a pause. Many it's, should It's be so shaking. serious. Yes, it's so serious. Yes,
0: and believers are are nervous for the loved ones they have who are living outside of relationship with Christ.
1: It's a very serious matter and that's why I use the word grave. I agree. You know, Billy Graham's dad had this feeling that he had committed this unpardonable sin and he 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 went to a revival meeting and he heard this and he thought he was guilty of it so he lived in so many years of in this fear um, and yet he had evidence in his life how he wrestled with the Spirit when he sinned. Finally, the Spirit um, really revealed to him that because he wrestled with sin, that was giving him assurance that he had lacked for so long. So the wrestling with sin is is an indicator that you care and that you want to please God. Now, listeners, have you been held in fear of committing this sin? I think many have. The fact that you fear sinning against God is a confirmation that the Spirit at work. God has promised in his word, the Bible, that believers have had their sins removed as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. So those of you who are not sure where you are, if you have committed this sin or not, there's only one solution. Receive Christ today. Even if your whole life you have been a closed book to the conviction and the draw of God's spirit. Today, he may be working, drawing, wooing you to Christ. Don't resist. Scripture says, today, when you hear his voice, respond to this offer of salvation. No more delay.
0: And if you're listening to this show, you're listening for a reason. And if you have not made this decision to believe in the Lord Jesus, to give your trust and faith to him, then you are outside of God's family, and you can change that right now.
1: Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And I rarely am this direct, but this really requires directness. And I don't think anybody wants to placate other people. You want truth. I think most people want the truth. They just give it to me straight, and we are giving it straight. To your listeners today, Bill. Now, the second verse about the Holy Spirit that really worries us is found in the Bible in the book of Ephesians, verse 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Very first thing to notice about this warning is that it is written to believers. This is a warning to those who've received Christ and have the Holy Spirit living within them. Remember, if you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit only believers have been sealed for the day of redemption and are secure in, eter- in eternal life so then what does grieving the holy spirit mean or look like as a christian am i guilty of this how can i remedy this uh, how long does that go on so now putting this verse in context the apostle paul is giving instructions on how to live the christian life don't steal don't be idle um Watch what you, comes out of your mouth. Watch out for anger. So he, all of this, it, this is within that context. The third verse that is similar to this one, we're going to talk about them together, is the one admonition not to quench the Spirit. So there's grieving and there's quenching the Spirit. That's from 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Both grieving and quenching the Spirit is something believers can do. First, grieving the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Spirit is when we do things contrary to who the Spirit of God is. Grieve really is a word used when affection is present. We grieve the Holy Spirit or hurt his heart, giving him pain over our actions. As parents, we understand this. We love our kids, but sometimes they bring a lot of pain into our lives. So how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? I recently read a description of this that was so helpful to me. It's a quote from a woman by the name of Ruth Paxton, and she said this, We can know what hurts the Holy Spirit when we consider our conduct in light of the words Scripture uses to depict the Holy Spirit. He is truth. So anything false, deceitful, or hypocritical grieves Him. Scripture also talks about that He gives faith. So doubt, distrust, anxiety, worry, grieve him. He also brings grace into our life. So whatever in us that is hard, bitter, malicious, ungracious, unforgiving, unloving, grieves him. And he is holy, his holiness. So anything unclean, defiling, or degrading grieves him. So what happens in our lives then is that he can grow silent or pause his ministry in your life. You've heard of dry spells, maybe. And sometimes God is really using those not to hurt us or to harm us, but actually to help us along the path of growing in holiness. This doesn't mean that he withdraws completely. Remember, the Holy Spirit, when you have been converted to Christ, lives in you eternally. It's eternal life, and he is there, and that guarantees that eternal life. So he doesn't withdraw He just may pull back a little bit or grow silent. You may feel dry, people describe it like that, or a little numb spiritually. But this is only his invitation for you to see your sin and to repent. You know, David's sin with Bathsheba, we all know about that. He describes in Psalm 32, he says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So that was really David experiencing this grief The work of the Holy Spirit is to draw us closer to Christ. And he does this in drawing us into conversion, to believing in Christ. And then he continues his work after conversion as he eternally lives in us. So he draws, he convicts us of sin so that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. He's also called Bill the helper and the comforter. And I love that. He also helps us to follow Christ, and he will give us a signal by his grief if we are not. Thank the Lord for this kind of warning within us. I love it. He is our comforter in that he reassures us of his eternal presence, of his love in the very act of grieving us. This is another act of grace toward us wow. from God.
0: That's lovely. We're going to take a break. You are listening to Beverly Canaris. We are talking about grieving the Holy Spirit. This is not an easy topic, but we are learning lots about grieving, quenching, and uh, making sure that you do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Say that. There's no soft way to say that. No no to say that. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Quenching the Holy Spirit, grieving the Holy Spirit, that's what we're talking about today with Beverly Canaris. Beverly taught Bible study fellowship for 30 plus years. Always oh, nice to have her here. She does a lot of reading, writing, mentoring, and I love your, her heart for God's Word because it's loud and clear, Bev, that you come in only wanting to share what's in the Word.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. That, I don't have anything good to say. Nor do I. No. Just, kind of kind of a blank, but God's Word is so rich, so good, and it's so exciting to share it with people. And to it's like a gift. You know, we get to give this gift of God's Word mm. to to people today.
0: Yeah, it's inexhaustible, inexhaustible joy.
1: True. Yep. And it's an inexhaustible resource. I agree. Yeah, I never run out of topics. Do you? Never. I, have you ever no. been without topics here on uh, two hours a day, never. five days a week? Never. No. God's Word is so deep and so thorough. And it's um, such a blessing and a gift, like I said, to be able to give to um, people through teaching. So I'm grateful for being here today, But we are talking about kind of a sobering subject here. We started off with talking about blaspheme of the Holy Spirit and what that really is, and that really is denial of Christ. It is what the Pharisees were doing when they were denying Christ's power, God, uh, you know, His divine power, they were denying it. And uh, we can do that too if we are outside of the faith. If we have not received Christ, we are rejecting or blaspheming, Talking against the Holy Spirit.
0: So again, Bev, if you are a believer, you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit.
1: No, you cannot. If
0: you are born again. You are born with the again. Spirit, yes, yes. You cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but
1: you can grieve the Holy Spirit
0: and you can quench the Holy Spirit. Right. That's and very different. Both, very different. Both can be forgiven.
1: Absolutely. There's yeah. always repentance uh, and forgiveness for the believer.
0: And there's a built-in mechanism that will convict you of your sin or your um,
1: drifting. Exactly, yeah. the Holy Spirit, right? And that's why we're so grateful for Him, and that's why this all this information today is so, port, is so important for yes. us as we as we talk about these things. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this quenching idea. Um, the Holy Spirit; it's similar to um, what it is called grieving the Holy Spirit, but this is a little different. The Holy Spirit is often depicted as what wind or fire. Remember on Pentecost, the tongues of fire came Mm -hmm. down on the apostles and the people in the room. And uh, when we quench the Holy Spirit, what we are doing is you might say we're throwing water on him. We're hindering his qualities to work in our lives. You know what? We want to stay hot for the Lord. Hot for the Lord. And never want to put out that fire in us. I want to have that fire till the day I die. So how do we quench the spirits? Well, there's several ways. Um, First of all, fire dies out when the material it feeds on is gone. Think about backburning, how they'll backburn so that there's nothing there more to feed the fire and it will stop it. When we remove the Bible, prayer, community, serving or worship, the fire or work of the Holy Spirit will die down. Mm -hmm. We're not feeding it. We're not feeding the fire of the Spirit. So this is why I say, we yes, the Holy Spirit does all these wonderful things for us. And that list that I gave at the beginning, if if you've missed that, go back and listen to that, because that will really, in a nutshell, give you the work of the Holy Spirit and the wonderful things he does. However, we have to cooperate with this work. Another way to put out the fire is to put something on it to smother it, right? You You throw a Kitchen towel on it, which is never a good idea, but maybe flour. Um, our stubborn sin rebellion, resisting any new way the Spirit may want to move us is really kind of smothering out the Holy Spirit or not paying attention to those nudges that He's giving us, you know, to be to pick up that Bible, to start reading it, to, to get to church on Sunday, whatever it might be. If we just keep resisting those nudges, pretty soon they become numb and we disregard them altogether and maybe even the Spirit will be quenched and those n- proddings will stop. It may happen when we come to seek to live out our Christian lives in the power of the flesh instead of depending on the Holy Spirit. That quenches the Spirit when we're doing it just out of our own strength. Materialism. In other words, you're replacing the wonderful things of God with the earthly things. You can start to quench the Spirit through that. How about our culture today, Bill, with busyness or our phones, our social media can start to quench the Holy Spirit, because mm-hmm. we're, we're throwing water on the fire. We're, we're not in the Word like we can be. We're, we're distracted all the time. And also, when the church becomes a business and its leaders are unsanctified, that can quench the Holy Spirit in a church, a body of, of believers. Or stealing God's glory or taking credit for what God has done through the Holy Spirit will quench the Spirit. So, what if you have sensed either a grieving or a quenching of the Holy Spirit? This is a very important observation, which need, which we need to really pay attention to. So, I hope that what's been said here today, take some time and confess any and repent of any sin that the Lord brings to mind. Clear the air with the precious, indwelling Holy Spirit. Feed the fire of the Spirit in by reading God's Word, the Bible, praying, having fellowship with others, get back into church, serve Him with the whole heart. Then you can go and you can live your life in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God alone. Then, like David, your joy in the Lord will be renewed mm. if you have gone through grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit.
0: Uh, Bev, I sometimes think of the Holy Spirit, as a person standing behind me with His sh- hand on my shoulder. I love that image. <laughs> well, it's pretty much reality, but then everything I look at or every conversation I have or every person that I'm short-tempered with or I'm not kind to, I'm sitting here with the Holy Spirit with his hand on my shoulder, standing behind me, giving
1: you a little squeeze here and there. Well, <laughs>
0: I'm I'm forcing him to sit through that garbage. Yeah.
1: That oh, that's true. Bringing ah, this holy character yes, into yes. into that into that. I know. I love the word "walking with the Spirit" is too. If you want a positive image of the Holy Spirit walking with him, doing life together with God is walking with the Holy Spirit because He is God's presence within me, walking through my daily life, all my decisions, how I speak to people, um, what I'm taking from His Word, all of those things, I'm walking in the Spirit. And we don't want to run ahead of the Spirit and do our own thing, and we don't want to lag behind, which can cause this grieving of the Holy Spirit or quenching of the Holy Spirit. So walking, staying right next to Him, walking with Him is... um, the way we're to live our life and I love the image of his hand on your shoulder that's beautiful I always picture him in my heart like the little kid who it, the doctor was listening to his heart and he says she, the doctor said you have a very nice strong heart and he goes that's because Jesus lives in there <laughs> Isn't that cute
0: yeah yeah but when when I when I sense the holy spirit standing behind me with his hand on my shoulder how I treat people how I look at people am I seeing people as image bearers of God or am I finding them inconvenient or get out of the way or, you know, it's terrible mm-hmm. how you can, you can have, um, if you're not steeped in prayer every day. Yeah. And
1: you're, you're bringing him into all that yes, stuff. Yes. 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 And this is why we have to walk with him on a daily basis. Yeah. Not quenching.
0: Not quenching. and Not grieving. Not grieving don't <laughs> don't quench don't grieve
1: <laughs> no but you know what that that God God doesn't God does it for good intents it's not to harm or to to punish you this these two things are really meant to get your attention and to bring you back closer to
0: himself-hmm thank you so much this is a good study I appreciate it
1: welcome nice to be here yep.
0: beverly canaris has been my guest grieving the holy spirit has been the topic if you missed any of it i do recommend hearing it from the beginning you can go to the podcast at myfaithradio.com. i know you'll be blessed by it we'll take a break and we come back dr greg borgon is going to join us we'll be right back
2: the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, yeah. what's for dinner? Yeah. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno.
0: All right, I know you've asked this question before. What is happening in the world? And it makes you scratch your head. And fortunately for me, when I have a sleepless Dr. Greg Borgon, and he's up all night wondering... This very thought, he produces some amazing content, and we're going to talk to him about that today. He is the founder and president of Heart of a Warrior's Ministries, and Greg, welcome back to the show. That's good to be here, Bill. It's good yeah. to be here. I know a lot of people ask that question: What is going on in the world? What's happening?
2: Well, you know, it's kind of like uh, you know driving a car, and you you hear something wrong, and you keep driving in a hope that the noise will go away. Turn up the radio. Yeah, turn up the radio, yeah. especially afternoons with Bill Thanks, Thank you, should be thank on, you, yes. On everybody's radio. And so sooner or later you have to look under the hood to see, okay, what's going on here? And that's kind of what's been going through, not kind of, it's been going through my mind and driving me crazy to try to figure out the underlying currents that are creating such chaotic waters today for our culture and for anybody that lives in our culture So that very question, of course, came up. You know, what is happening in the world? How could leading authorities make such outrageous claims? How could uh, governmental policies be so far off the mark? Is there something in the water we drink? (laughs) Am I now living in an alternate universe, a bizarro world, if you're familiar with Marvel Comics? Has common sense been replaced with no sense or absolute nonsense? It's a
0: great question. Yeah. I mean, where has common sense gone? Yeah.
2: So, you know, I believe that we can trace the derailing bill of our society and our culture to three prevailing, and I consider them to be anti-biblical influences, whose inspiration comes from the enemy himself. The first one, perspectivism. Frederick uh, Nietzsche, a German philosopher, and he was a cultural critic, he lived from 1844 to 1900, building on the work of another philosopher, Gottfried uh, Leibniz, um, actually coined the phrase and fully developed the concept of perspectivism. Yeah. That is, all truth is based on a person's perspective. In other words, what uh, Nietzsche is saying, he's challenged the traditional notions of truth, Morality and values. So perspectivism uh, argues that all truth claims are contingent on and the product of a person's perspective. So Nietzsche's philosophy attacks the concept of essential truth, which we believe in. Mm -hmm. And he seeks to destabilize the concept of uh, any idea of a universal morality.
0: Greg, isn't that just moral anarchy if everyone's perspective is equal?
2: Well, what it there's, does is it puts you in a position of godhood to decide what's true and what's not true. Good point. But it does create chaos because then you'll have multiple gods.
0: Yeah, there's no, there's no consensus. Which is,
2: which is your point. You right. Know? So, um, so in, in essence, he forcefully stated that a perspective-free or interpretation-free objective reality is impossible. In other words, all truth claims are contingent on and the product of a person's perspective. He attacks the notion of essential or absolute truth, which we as Christians believe in, and sought to destabilize the concept of the universal morality. He would say that conscience is really a social construct, the, the byproduct of prevailing social dynamics. Since there is no real truth, according to him, reality is relative to each person's own interpretation and perspective. And by the way, for the sake of of clarity, our audience should be aware of this. He was really the originator of the statement, God is dead, but rarely are you told the whole quote. Here's what the whole quote says. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Whoa. So in the world, your truth ends, in other words, where my nose begins. Hmm. Let me give you an example of this. And this is very recent. An article comments on a recent paper written by 29 authors entitled In Defense of Merit in Science, primarily scientists, including two Nobel laureates laureates, uh, in fields as varied as uh, physics, psychology, pharmacokinetics, um, and they raise the alarm that research is increasingly, Bill, becoming a politicized agenda one that often characterizes science as fundamentally racist in need of
0: decolonizing. I don't know what uh, that means, in need of decolonizing. Okay. Well,
2: they, f- they figured it was the colonists who brought in racism to begin with, so gotcha. they need to decolonize us. Okay. So, in essence, yeah. the article says there are three uh, areas in which this is prevalent. One is called positional statements. They're declarations... Um, and, uh, and perceived biases and explicit acknowledgments by the author that must be stated in all research. I mean, related his or her identity, relative privilege, experiences of uh, uh, oppression, all of that kind of thing. So in other words, I, I'm going to give you research, but I want you to know I'm biased about it. Mm-hmm. And my bias comes from, you know, uh, let's call it uh, white privilege or it might be some of these other things. So there's, there's a, a push to have that into The research. The second thing is what's called citation justice. This is an attempt to achieve racial or gender balance in scholarly references. So, in other words, we've got to have balance between male and female, and now it's got to be probably beyond multiple genders. But the fact of the matter is is that there are some sciences, there are more men than there are women, so you won't see references, citation references, from a lot of women on, on various subjects because they're just not in the field. And then there's the third area, gate that the article addressed, gatekeeper political litmus test. So in other words, if you're seeking faculty employment or let's say you're applying for a a, a grant program um, and uh, you're required to state what your uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion goals are right up front before they make a decision whether or not they're going to grant you Whatever money it is Mm -hmm. for your your proposal. Well, so what's the bottom line? So That's just a a most recent example. The bottom line is this. Um, The position uh, that we're talking about, uh, which is uh, perceptivism, simply states that there is no absolute or objective truth. uh, Perspectives are the only reality. Relativism and subjectivism prevail. The loudest voices win the day. While proponents of truth are criticized, denigrated, vilified, marginalized, and ostracized. Now, what does the Word of God have to say about all of this? Can
0: I just say this is a little depressing?
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean... uh... You know, we always have to start, I believe, Bill, from a position of reality to know where we need to go. I agree. And if we have a perception of reality, whether it's because we're encumbered by all that's happening around us, so we create a new reality... Then we build expectations against nothing, something that's not true. So, this is not meant to discourage the audience, just to give them words or vocabulary or, or at least a construct to understand what's going on, to know, to be able to see it in advance rather than to turn around and all of a sudden it's there in front all right. of
0: them. How about I read what some of the uh, scripture says? Sure, please, would you? All right. Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What does that sound like right now? What is it ever? Uh, how about for the believer, God is truth. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life, John fourteen six, And in John 8, verses 31 to 32, if we are his disciples, we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free.
2: Now, keep in mind that Nietzsche believes there is no absolute truth, but God is saying, I am truth, my son embodies the truth, and I am the purveyor
0: of truth. How about Romans chapter 1, 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Yes, so it's coming. We are also warned in Scripture to watch our Doctrines closely. We learn about that in First Timothy, chapter four, verse sixteen. Also, the time is coming, and you think it's probably it's it's on us now. It's on us. Yep. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths.
2: Isn't that exactly what's happening? Exactly it. So, this started back in the 1800s, and it was kind of under the surface for a while, then resurrected in secular humanism, then went under again for a little while, and now it's making itself felt again in our culture in a very, in my perspective, a very dramatic way. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the, the second one, the negation of reality. So, first of all, we had the perceptivism, this concept of there is no truth, that Truth is only realized through your own perceptions, your own senses. So here's the second one, the negation of reality. Under the tutelage of Frederick Engels, Karl Marx inspired, as many of our listeners probably already know, the Russian Revolution of 1917 that overthrew the imperial government and placed the Bolsheviks in power. And so how was this possible? The philosophy that brought about that huge change is really prevalent today. The philosophy can be can be stated this way: You have to destroy the real if you want to replace it with something else. Mm. So there's no compromise. There's no dialogue. Somehow you've got to ext- extract, get rid of the real, or whatever is perceived to the real, or what everybody is embracing as the real, so that you can fill the void because nature abhors a void.
0: So this is an in, an intentional methodology.
2: Intentional. Yeah. Exactly.
0: And it has to be. Yeah. Okay
2: it manifests itself in what's become known as wokeism, which is the denouncing of what is understood as our current reality and what we currently hold dear through denigration, bias criticism, vilification and reflection of traditions, our heritage and our religious beliefs, our existing governmental structures. Everything is all of a sudden either archaic, um, unrealistic, unusable, unhelpful, uh, which uh, implicitly announces, and then they implicitly announce a better alternative, a new world hope. And here's the the kicker. They do it without ever telling you what it really is going to look like. They just say, it's coming. But it, you're not going to realize it until you get rid of what is. Mm-hmm. And what is right now, what you've been holding on to, is wrong. So such a view rarely defines what the new world actually will deliver only... That this world is corrupt and must be replaced with a new hyper-reality. Now, let me drive that home by giving some concrete examples, Bill. So what, in essence, then, from the perspective of um, negating the real, needs replacement according to the perspective? Well, the position is everything. Think about the dialogues you've heard on TV from politicians, activists, and others Christianity must be mollified, marginalized, and ostracized, which is exactly what's happening today. The current republic, our democracy, and capitalism must be destroyed. The push towards socialism, more and more people wanting to adopt that model, even though it's been a failure every place that it was instituted. Real science is not real science and must be redefined, kind of correlating with what we started with today Mm -hmm. on our discussion. The Constitution is outdated. It needs to be replaced. Does this all sound familiar? Sure does. Police must be abolished and prisons closed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how, you might ask, could Western culture support the whole notion of gender fluidity that now seems the norm rather than the exception? First, you have to denigrate the real thing of sex determined by biology, which is happening. And secondly, you have to denigrate anyone who believes otherwise. So not only do you say it's wrong without giving any substantive data, without any facts, without any real science, it's just wrong. And if you argue against me, you're wrong. And that's the position. They don't play fair, do they, Greg? No. No,
0: the enemy doesn't. Yeah, we'll take a little break. We'll come back with Dr. Greg Borgon as we're talking about today the uh, prevailing influences and what is happening in our world. We'll be right back. Do you think of yourself as courageous, a world changer? Maybe fear rules the day and keeps you from identifying in these ways. But when you step out in faith and decide to take action in the moment, living this day in light of that day, eternity, you change the world. The Afternoon Show is part of the listener-supported faith radio. This content is only available because of your support. The impact on lives, the reach around the world happens because you stand up to make a difference. Now's your time. Take the next step and be bold by joining the support team now. Click the link in the show notes or go to myfaithradio.com. Thank you so much. What is happening in our world? I'm talking about that today with Dr. Greg Borgon. If you just joined us, uh, we are uh, talking about the prevailing influences in our world today. And we're going to get to a bottom line. But before that, uh, it, Greg says that there's it, it is one thing to be ignorant unintentionally. It is quite another thing to be ignorant on purpose. To compound the problem is to be arrogant about uh, ignorance, unwilling to be informed by history, reality, facts, and absolute truth.
2: So we had talked in the past, Bill, about arrogant ignorance, and this is kind of what I was referring to here, that not only are we ignorant on purpose, but we're arrogant about what we're ignorant about, and we don't want you to change their mind, or yeah. my mind, you know, that type of a thing. What's the bottom line? Dialogue has been replaced by monologue. Monologue now has been replaced by screaming monologues. And screaming monologues are being now replaced by outrageous demands. And you're seeing that everywhere, mm-hmm. whatever you read, listening to. But Paul's exhortation to Timothy is true for us today. And here's the encouragement and the charge, he says. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the to judge the living and the dead, that's coming, regardless of what these influences are, they're going to have. They're going to come to an end, and the purveyors of it are going to come to an end. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be uh, ready in season and out of season. In other words, when it's convenient, when it's not convenient, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and truth, according to Second Timothy four, verse one and two, In First Peter three, verses thirteen through seventeen. We're encouraged and exhorted now. I'm quoting here from Scripture, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and many Christians are today, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness And respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we have encouragement here that even in the face of this great adversity, and in the face of these growing ways of dissension and chaos and anarchy, God's saying, he who is in you is greater than he who is outside of you. Stand and face it. Be my representative. Be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in you. Mm-hmm. Make that stand because you have me in your corner and you have truth in your corner. Amen. So that's an encouragement to me, Bill. Even though this could, um, you could feel overwhelmed by these things, the idea is at least you know the wave is there. Oh, here's the third and final one, Bill, the sacred-secular divide. Francis Schaeffer, widely recognized as one of the most influential Christian thinkers of our day, suggested that we live our lives in two stories, like a house, two stories in a house, an upper sacred story and a lower secular story. The sacred story refers to things pertaining to the spiritual and eternal realm of God's affairs, or related to religion. In this upper story are the activities that we're very familiar with, like prayer and Bible study and worship and theology, evangelism, discipleship, spiritual disciplines, devotions, and the things we normally embrace on a Sunday. The secular floor refers to those things pertaining to the physical and temporal realms of human affairs, or anything not related to religion. In this story... This lower story are the activities of work, reason, business, politics, science, economics, mass media, the arts, uh, social justice initiatives that we engage in on the weekdays of our existence. So what he's saying is, is that we're living in two stories, that it's all right, the public says, for you to keep your faith private, but don't let it interject what we're doing here publicly because that, that has no place. It's good for you. It's all right for you. Keep it private. That's what the push is. Now, many followers of Christ have bought into the cult of the sacred-secular divide that compartmentalizes one's faith into two separate worlds. Nancy Percy, in 2008, wrote this great book, Total Truth. She makes the following observation. Christians often live in two separate worlds, commuting between the private world of family and church where we can express our faith freely and the public world where religious expression is firmly suppressed but no christian she says in any profession can be happy when torn in two contrary directions so our faith she says is relegated to the private sphere of our life rarely venturing between the boundary beyond the boundary between the sacred and the secular, into the public domain of our lives. Her concern, and frankly mine as well, is the growing impotency of Christianity as a viable counter to secularism in our society. Piercy quotes theologian Walter Casper, secularization did not cause the death of religion, but it did cause it to become one sector of modern life along with many others. Religion has lost its claim, to universality and its power of interpretation. That is, Christianity no longer functions from his perspective, now we're talking, as a lens to interpret the whole of reality. It is no longer held as total truth. So that's not true from God's perspective. The bottom line is all creation, both sacred and secular, are God's. And one day all creation will be restored, Romans 8.22. and Ephesians one we we're reminded that God placed all things under Christ's authority and appointed him the head of everything, not just the secular and not just the sacred, because he sees them as one. He did this so that God may be all in all, according to 1 Corinthians 15.28. So, Bill, we, we got to remember that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, that is, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. Now these verses suggest we engage the culture. We should do so with that in mind, that whenever we engage the culture, we do that with, uh, with that in mind. Whatever you do, it says in Scripture, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what we have to recognize, Bill, in my perspective is, regardless of these three influences of, you know, perspectivism and um, negating the real and uh, the divide between the sacred and the secular, they may exist, but they're not as big as God is. And God has given us, it says in Scripture, everything we need to live a godly life in bold relief against the backdrop of our culture, prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in us. Because the only other option, frankly, Bill, is to acquiesce, fold back into our culture, becoming really transparent with it. We can't be distinguished apart from it. And there's nothing about our lives that'll ever draw anybody to God's Son's cross. Mm -hmm. But we have been given everything, it says in Scripture, we need. Even in the face of this great adversity, these three influences that are sweeping across our country and soon to lap the shores of many other countries, I believe, that we stand in bold relief. So what would I say in conclusion, Bill? We have been given a mandate to facilitate God's redemptive purposes in a fallen world. How are we going to do that without sound biblical beliefs, axiomatic truth, truth, biblically informed values, a biblical worldview and godly motives that will determine the quality of behavior presented to a broken
0: world that surrounds us? So there is hope. Mm, Lots of hope because our trust trust and hope is in the Lord Jesus. And... When I'm looking at this sacred secular divide, Greg, uh, and the upper story and the lower story, we're, we were never made to live our lives in compart- c- compartments.
2: No, we haven't. We're no. not. I mean, it's not like we're in the middle of a war like what happened in World War II when these families in Amsterdam um, were secured away into an apartment yeah. and, um, and then just lived their lives there for over a year. So— That's what many Christians, I think, today feel Maybe their only option, um, is to cloister away into some Christian ghetto of protection and security when God has called us into the world to minister to the world for the sake of the world, but not be of the world. Mm -hmm. But there's no way that the world will not rub off on us. That's why we need to regularly wash our clothes,
0: spiritually speaking, in the Word, which is called the water of the Word. That's fantastic. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. We've been talking about what is happening in the world and he gave us three very interesting things to consider. Perspectivism, which uh, Nietzsche sort of drove and then there was also the idea of the negation of reality because we're living in that day and age nowadays. We call evil good and good evil, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. And then the whole idea of the sacred, secular divide that you're living your life in two different floors, two different compartments and we need to live in one, and uh, be serving our King in every way we can, every day we do it. All right, Greg, thanks so much. Great to have My you privilege. here. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.